Hello, this is the Consciousness Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Preston. Each episode, I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Mark Gober, himself the host of a podcast about consciousness. Mark is a board member at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, a partner at Sherpa Technology Group in Silicon Valley, former New York investment banker, and now also an author and podcast host. His book, An End to Upside Down Thinking, shines the light on a different way of understanding consciousness. We had a great conversation and covered consciousness as a fundamental property of the universe, psi phenomena, and more. Please enjoy this episode with Mark Gober. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you uh, joining me today here on the Consciousness Podcast. So um, probably we should start with maybe you could tell us a little bit about your book, An End to Upside Down Thinking. I I guess from the subtitle, most of us could guess you know, what your position is, but I'd like to just get a general overview of what the book is about and kind of how you came up with it. Sure. So the book explores what Science Magazine has called the number two question that remains in all of science, uh, which, as they phrase it, what is the biological basis of consciousness? In other words, how is Mm -hmm. it that a body, more specifically a brain, how could consciousness, this sense of awareness that we all have this very instant, how does that non-physical thing that we can't even touch arise from a physical thing like a human body or a brain? And that's the big question. It's kind of the open secret in science that we all have consciousness and no one seems to know where it comes from or how it could come from a brain and a body. And my book is, is exploring right. all the evidence suggesting that uh, we are asking the wrong question. That the question, yeah. what is the biological basis of consciousness, it assumes that there is a biological basis in the first place. And what if there is right. no biological basis? And that's what my book explores. Okay. Um, what is the, the first biggest question we haven't answered yet? The number one question, according to Science Magazine, is what is the universe made out of? And I would argue that... What is it made out of? Number, questions one and two are interrelated. Yeah, I, w- I would guess that uh, you might have some, a new hypothesis on that, too, based on your ideas. Yes, I, I would say that the answer is consciousness. Yeah. So is that, is that the central idea that consciousness is um, a, a basis in science, is that what's going to rock the scientific world? Is it, it's a fundamental uh, force or element or, you know, what, what you might call it. Is that what you say is going to rock the scientific world? Yeah, it's, it's a complete paradigm shift in, in the underlying paradigm in which most of science views reality. And that paradigm is known traditionally as materialism or physicalism, which says that Basically, there was a Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, which filled the universe with physical material that we call matter. So atoms or my tables made out of atoms of matter, physical stuff. Mm -hmm. And in this big universe, you have lots of atoms interacting. And through the interaction of those atoms, we'll call that chemistry, you end up with, by chance, uh, a, a molecule that can replicate itself. When you have enough of these chemical reactions happening between pieces of matter in this big universe over many, many years, Chance says eventually you'll end up with a self-replicating molecule, and that's like DNA. So DNA leads to the evolution of life, like a human being, which develops a brain, and from the brain comes consciousness. That is the materialistic paradigm, and what I'm arguing, which is what many others are arguing as well, is that that paradigm needs to be flipped. So instead of saying consciousness comes at the very end, what I'm arguing is that consciousness comes first. So to quote Max Planck, 
who was a Nobel Prize winning physicist, in 1931, he said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. And that's precisely the shift that I'm arguing in my book and that many others are, are talking about as well. Is consciousness at that point in the very, I don't know if there is even a, quote, beginning, like, like with the, the, the materialist, physicalist view of all this, there's a beginning that we can go to the Big Bang. Is there a beginning with um, consciousness? And is it kind of, does it have entropy? Did it become more organized over time? I mean, how, how did it basically evolve to a point where everything evolved from it? These are great questions. So the reason that I, I, I start with the materialist paradigm and then say we need to flip it and say consciousness starts at the beginning is, is that's in order to use language to be able to anchor people to something that, that can kind of make sense in our logical minds. Yeah. But when we think about this more precisely, I would argue that consciousness exists beyond space and time and that even our conceptions of space and time, we, we, those are interpretations of the human mind. So I, I think time and space are things that we can't even actually grasp. And so consciousness exists without a cause because causality in a linear sense means that something from the past caused something to happen in the future. But if time doesn't work that way, then what is causality? And so I think that the, the existence of consciousness is beyond this, this concept of time. And to your question of how is it, has it increased in complexity over time? Well, then I think we're getting into the realm of stuff that our, our human mind can't compute because we don't, because if time is not linear, then, then progress doesn't work in the way that we think it does. Yeah, and I'm thinking in old paradigms. Right. Just in even asking, asking that question. Yes, the question itself um, has an inherent flaw. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I can, I can see it doesn't quite fit into that box I keep trying to put it into. I, I, had, the, uh, I had similar problems keeping up with Bernardo Castrip. And, and listening to his, his theory. So every now and then I might come off the rails with you. So just bring me back on. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, the, uh, and, and so, uh, and I, I don't want you to take this question the wrong way because I certainly don't mean it. I, when I reread the question, I thought, you know, that, does, that maybe sounds like the wrong angle. But you have all these amazing endorsements. And like when you reached out to, you mentioned, you know, like Pim Van Lommel, who I just interviewed. And so you've got a, l- a lot of really amazing people, Dean Radin, you know, that are endorsing your, your book. Um, have, you, have you approached any like the, the real stubborn, hardcore scientists, you know, and do they give you any grief about this? Do they ignore it? Do they just go, this does not real? I mean, what kind of reaction have you gotten from people on that side of things? I haven't really communicated with many of them. So the way this book came about was pretty sudden. I mean, for me, all of this, my background's in finance. I used to work in investment banking in New York, and now I'm, I'm a partner at a firm in Silicon Valley advising tech companies. And in 2016, mm-hmm. I heard podcasts on these topics, and it shifted my worldview 180 degrees. I mean, it was a total life shift for me to think about reality uh, from something other than the materialist perspective. I just didn't know all this evidence existed. So I researched for about a year, not planning to write a book, and then very quickly decided, wait, I've done all this research. Why don't I put it on paper and make all this information accessible for people and just put it in one place? So I wrote the book very quickly yeah. over a few weekends in July of 2017, and then was fortunate wow. to get in touch with a, a, an agent publisher, and the publishing process happened very quickly. And what I learned in that process is that, especially as a new author who works in finance and is trying to write a book on a paradigm shift in consciousness, 
and the nature of reality, yeah. it can be helpful to get endorsements so that people know, kind of have a stamp of, from people that are already credible in the space. Um, so that was a process that happened fairly quickly. And, and because of the nature of the, hmm. of the book, I reached out to many of the scientists that are deeply embedded in this topic. Um, so right. those are many of the people that endorse the book. I, have, I haven't really engaged as much with the people that are, are against this stuff. Um, I don't, maybe in the future I will. Yeah. Yeah, they tend, to, it seems like they tend to just push it away as, as not, not real enough to look at, which isn't good enough, right? There, we should still be looking at certain things. But if you can't set up an experiment in a lab that is re reproducible, then a lot of scientists tend to, to not want to look at it which right. is really too bad because there's some really big things here. Um, right. And, and there, are you some kind of your... that, there are some studies that have been reproducible, I should add, where, you know, over many decades, many thousands of replications show statistical effects. So one would think that that might get someone's attention, but it's still being swept under the rug. Yeah. Maybe a few more centuries. <laughs> maybe. Sorry. What were you saying, Stuart? Um, yeah, I was going to say your, your story is interesting. Um, you're still in finance, but going from you know, the, the finance world into what you're reading and writing and podcasting about these days is quite a big change. And I think I read somewhere in your materials that these, these ideas you have could change the way that we treat each other, which I find fascinating. And, and what, what do you mean by that? And how, how could we, if we understood this and we turned the paradigm upside down, what about that would cause us to maybe start treating each other differently? Well, I'll start by, by explaining the implications of materialism, because this is the, the system in which our education system is, is really, our, our education system comes from this perspective that consciousness comes from the brain. When the brain stops functioning, there's no more consciousness, meaning there's no, right. no sense of existence after bodily death. And it also implies a sense of separation. There is a mark here with the brain that has a marked consciousness. There's a stort over there with a stort brain that has a stort consciousness. These consciousnesses are not connected. We're not connected in any way beyond the fact that we live in the same universe, we live on the same planet, and we have somewhat similar genetics because we're part of the same species. But fundamentally, we're separate. So this is the materialist paradigm, which is that we are separate individuals who have a finite existence. And what this alternative paradigm is suggesting, based on, at least for me, that I think the scientific evidence points in this direction, is that we are not finite beings, that our consciousness continues beyond the body, and furthermore, that we are interconnected. So to quote Erwin Schrodinger, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, he said, in truth, there is only one mind. And that's what I think all this points towards. And Bernardo Castro, who you mentioned, a philosopher in this area, has a metaphor on this, which is that we are like whirlpools in a stream of consciousness. In other words, we, we have this sense of individuality, but it's only kind of illusory. And that at the, at the higher level of reality, we're all interconnected as water in the same stream. So the implications I think are immense for that. And the example I like to point to is one of the phenomena reported in the near-death experience. So the near-death experience yeah. instance where a person has some kind of physiological trauma and they, they, quote unquote, shouldn't have a lucid consciousness, and yet they come back once they're resuscitated and they're able to explain things uh, that happened. Their thinking is reported as clearer than usual or more logical than usual in some cases. Uh, but in some of those cases, what people report during the time that their brain is either barely functional or completely off, they're verified as accurate. So that those are, it's difficult to explain that using traditional neuroscience because the brain's 
basically off, and yet the consciousness is on to the point where it's not a hallucination because what's reported is accurate at that time. So I think for many reasons that I explain in the book, I think the near-death experience is something we should t- look at very seriously and not just as some kind of hallucination. So if we buy into that, one of the phenomena reported is known as the life review, where people in the state, where, again, yeah. where their brain shouldn't be functional, they are rep- living their whole li- lives over again in a flash, in an instant. So something's happening where time is compressed, and maybe this has to do with Einstein's relativity, where time basically moves at different rates, uh, depending on a number mm-hmm. of factors. But that, that's what happens in the state. People relive their whole lives. But what's really interesting to me is that not only do they relive their whole lives from their own perspective, but they relive it through the eyes of the people that they impacted. And I'll give an example of someone that I interviewed for my podcast. My podcast is called Where Is My Mind on the same topic. I interviewed Danian Brinkley, who's had four near-death experiences himself, and each time he had a life review. Not everyone remembers having mm. a life review, but, but in his case, he remembered it each time, and it was very vivid and, and impactful because he fought in Vietnam when he was young, and he told me that he was vicious in combat. He relived the deaths of the people that he killed in combat during his life review, but not only that, mm. so it was, it was reliving it through the eyes of the people that he killed, but also he felt the indirect effects. So he felt the pain of the child who would no longer have a father because he killed the father in combat. And I think this wow. is one of the clearest demonstrations of the one mind in action, where in this, I don't know what it is, an alternative uh, view, alternative reality, other dimension of reality, somehow the consciousness is liberated and we're able to see things through, I don't know, multiple whirlpools. Some, this unity of consciousness becomes more apparent in this other dimension or something like that. And the unity is felt. And this is what people report when they come back. I mean, and it, and it has a major impact on their lives. Daniel Brinkley became a hospice volunteer. He, he went from being someone very materialistic to volunteering his time. And, and this is what's reported over and over again. Priorities shift because people view reality from this higher perspective, where what matters in life is not, not how big our house is or what kind of car we drive, but rather in the life review, what people see is how they treated other people. And sometimes it's the small things. It's how you treated the cashier in line. Not, yeah. not some of the things that we think are really important. So if, if someone just stops for a second and said, wait, what if what Mark said is even partially true? That, I mean, if it just, it zooms us out to a higher perspective in terms of how we think about our own lives and how we think about others around us. Yeah, I can see that having a, a, a huge impact. It would be the, the golden rule with a whole new um, thought pattern behind it. Exactly. So Dr. Eben Alexander, who's a former Harvard neurosurgeon, had a near-death experience. What he said to me when I interviewed him is that it's basically the golden rule written into the fabric of the universe. That's what the life review yeah. suggests. Yeah. Well, that is powerful. And I can see that really changing how we treat each other. Um, so I'm still trying to grasp this upside-down paradigm. Um, you talk about whirlpools you know, within the, the flowing fluid of, of consciousness, is it, is it kind of like um, field theory? Because, you know, with uh, quantum theory, when you observe the wave of a photon, it becomes a particle. And maybe with um, field theory, you know, when it's the, the particle is actually everywhere. It's a field, not just a wave. And then it has a, a moment of, 
energy that turns it into a particle within that field. Is that kind of what we're talking about with consciousness that it's like this overall field and then it, it gets formed into this whirlpool or into this um, particle that becomes a, a human consciousness. And then is it somehow, does it create the human or how is it bound? How am I experiencing my own consciousness? Those are right great now? questions. It, I'm still thinking about it backwards, aren't I? Well, I mean, you are having an individual experience as Stuart where you, you're not privy to everything happening in my mind, for example. So there, there, see, there is this appearance an experience of individuation. And I think that's undeniable that we all experience it. And the question is, well, how does that like kind of paradoxically exist within this unity? And is there a physical mechanism that can explain why there's a separation? I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah. All right. Well, I, the answer is I don't, I don't really know the answer. I think it, this is not well understood. So what I think it comes down to what is the function of the brain and how is the brain related to all this? I view the brain as yeah. kind of playing a, a, the role of a limiter or a filtering mechanism. So the brain's actually getting okay. in the way of us experiencing something much broader. And what we see with near-death experiences is that the brain has less functioning, and yet there's a heightened experience of reality. We've seen this with some initial studies in psychedelics where people have reductions in certain brain functioning and yet heightened consciousness. We see this with right. ter terminal lucidity is another example where a person, for example, has Alzheimer's and they've been basically out of it mentally for their whole life during the time of the disease. Right. And shortly before death, they snap back into it and they're completely normal and yet their brain's not functional. So, or, or is, is not, should not be capable of producing that kind of consciousness. So there's something about the brain, I think, where it, it's, it's processing consciousness and, and limiting, restricting it so that we experience it through the lens of the specific physical body. Now, how and why that happens I think we're at the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding the mechanisms. I don't think we would get it now. And a part of the reason that we, I don't think we understand it very well is that much of our science is viewing the brain as the producer of consciousness. So until we flip the paradigm mm -hmm. and start asking these other questions, I think it's going to be difficult to come up with answers. Yeah, I sure wish that, I mean, do you know of anybody, I mean, I don't know, you know, there with, with your group, if you guys are looking or, or funding or, or looking at any kind of a study to kind of turn that paradigm upside down and try to make some observations with the brain and looking at it from that other direction. Has anybody really started down that path yet? There are scientists here and there looking at phenomena that one might call anomalous, an anomaly meaning something that doesn't align with the existing paradigm. If you, if you flip the paradigm and say consciousness is this fundamental aspect of reality, then these things actually are not anomalies that we're talking about. These are yeah. psychic effects and near-death experiences. These are things that you would predict to be true. And, and what's concerning to me, I think, and you might share a similar view, is that there are not, there's not enough money behind this and not enough concerted, organized research. Um, I, I recently joined the board of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which looks at some of these phenomena from a scientific lens and it's been, they've been running for over 50 years. It was founded by an Apollo 14 astronaut, Dr. Edgar Mitchell. So there are, and the University of Virginia has a division of perceptual studies that, that is looking at some of these phenomena. Uh, but to me, it's, right. it's, um, it's for how important this is. I would love to see many more academic institutions looking at it from this lens. Yeah, and I'm even thinking about um, even more than just the, the phenomena. I'm thinking almost um, 
thinking about it from being able like we, we try like they always take images of the brain mm-hmm. and say oh look you know electronic activity or whatever you know blood activity is happening so that must be a thought or memory like you said and we've got the paradigm backwards and i wonder if there's a way to almost try to observe how the brain is filtering the consciousness as opposed to creating it i don't i don't know if that's even possible but you got me curious i agree with you but I think it starts yeah. with asking the question from that perspective. And most of the neuroscientists that I've come across are asking it from the other direction is how are we right. tying the extent of our consciousness to our brain activity where the brain is the, the thing that's producing it. Yeah. Um, another thing you said that got me curious, cause a lot of times when I talk to people, I like to kind of throw out the, the ego you know, what is the ego and how, how, what, you know, how does that work in the brain? How does it work in consciousness? Um, Cause it was like psychedelic studies. You mentioned before, some of these guys have looked at these fMRIs and they've seen the default mode network in the brain kind of quiet down, mm-hmm. which allows connections to kind of run crazy. So even though we see a quieting down of the brain, there's actually a lot more it's able to get done. And we wonder if that's not the ego, but you mentioned that, when we say who, who is Mark or who is Stuart, what is my identity? I always identify it with my body or my brain, mm-hmm. but in your, in your paradigm, it's the self identity is really consciousness. And I wonder how, if at all that plays into kind of what, what is the ego within that paradigm and, and what are the differences or any thoughts you have on this identity piece that you put out there? Yeah, that's a big one for me. That's one has been one of the biggest life changers is shifting the identity away from the body and, and, to the consciousness that experiences the body. But at the same time, there is this paradox that we're faced with because we feel like we're a body and an individual. And yet at the higher level of reality, if we go from what you might call an absolute perspective instead of the relative perspective of being Mark, the absolute perspective being the one mind being the stream, at that level of reality, there's no Mm -hmm. separation. And yet at the relative level, it feels like there's separation. And then there's this ego personality named Mark who has a finite lifespan and doesn't remember anything before the life of Mark, uh, these things somehow coexist together. And what one might call the ego is this feeling of being the individual Mark and having distinct personality traits. Um, So this gets into really metaphysical questions of what is the function of the individual within the context of this stream of of the one mind? Why Why does the appearance of the individual even exist? And I think the answers at this point are extremely theoretical and maybe are incomplete. But the one that I hear very often is that there is kind of an evolutionary drive behind this one mind, behind this stream of consciousness, that a property, a quality of the one mind is that it is seeking to evolve itself. And that somehow in this creation of the ego, but the ego is veiled from its higher self, from the broader stream of consciousness, because we're not aware of it culturally very much, although I think people are waking up to it, there is this evolutionary process that occurs by veiling itself from itself, the broader consciousness evolves. And if, if that consciousness, if the individual knew all the answers, perhaps, maybe it couldn't evolve in the same way. So it's sort of like a student, Mm. you knew all the answers to the test and you knew everything about the course, then you wouldn't learn anything. And this is just a, this is a humanizing way of thinking about it. And this is a theory I've heard a yeah. lot. I don't know if we could ever prove it. And even if that's correct, I, I am always thinking, well, maybe that's just a kind of a, a partial answer. So the analogy I like to think of is 
there's a story called Flatland, where you have people who are living in two-dimensional land. So like people living on a piece of paper. Imagine if a sphere, a 3D sphere, intersects with the piece of paper, the 2D land. Everyone who's living in that 2D flat land, as the sphere is hitting the paper, uh, the sphere will intersect as a circle. So everyone in 2D land, they're only capable of seeing things in 2D. They'll say, wow, it's a circle over there. When in fact, they're right. missing the entire sphere. So I think when we get to these bigger metaphysical questions, I always wonder, are we answering it from the perspective of the circle, which isn't incorrect. It's just missing a lot of other stuff. Yeah. It's just all we can see right now. Right. We have these like little glimpses of, of the sphere intersecting with our 2D land. And we're trying to piece things together based on those little data points. I mean, another way to think about it is like a horseshoe, a three-dimensional horseshoe. That would appear from 2D land, from flat land, as two circles in different right. places. It's completely missing that it's a horseshoe, a three-dimensional horseshoe. So I, I, we as humans have limitations, I think. The human mind has limitations in what it can comprehend and what, what it can even try to think about. And yet we're trying to answer these bigger questions from the two-dimensional mind. And I think we have to keep that context in mind. And remember, I think it's, this is an act of humility, the humility to remember how limited our human mind is in trying to understand these big questions. Yeah, it's interesting. Because like you mentioned, the, the part of the theory for some people is that the brain is a filter that is filtering this greater consciousness, this greater collective universal consciousness. And I've also interviewed people like Tim Van Lommel mentioned to me, he said, you know, if you opened up your brain and let all this come in, it would be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. You know, it would just be too much for the, the neurological brain to handle. And then I interviewed another guy, Kyle Buller over at uh, psychedelics today who had a near death experience. And he came out of that experience believing, I think I'd have to go very check. So I don't want to misquote him, but a, an idea that came out of that, that at least I heard was that the greater consciousness has this moment in time in what we call an individual human, where it gets to be a physical entity mm -hmm. and it's a very special time that it gets to say, Oh, look, I'm in this physical entity where I can run around and do stuff and smell flowers. And when that time's over, it's over, you know? So some people have the out of body the near death experience and they're like, no, not yet. And they want to come back in. And some people are like, no, I'm really good to go. I don't need to go back to my meat bag body. And it sounds like, um, there could be something there with the whole consciousness and its evolution that it, it kind of needs these little data points in order to evolve, but it can't overwhelm the, the physical humans that are, that are part of that whole process. Yeah. I've, I've heard many ideas like that from people that come back from yeah. their experiences, people that, that channel mediumistically channel non-physical entities have, have come up with very similar messages. So I, hmm. I really don't know. I, it, it, it kind of yeah. makes sense, but I do wonder if, if even the near-death experience reports are the circle and not the full sphere. It's part of the answer. Right. Maybe there's just a lot more that we cannot wrap our heads around in a human body. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, makes, that, that makes confusing sense. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like uh, my professor in college when I was taking um, quantum physics he was writing a big equation on the board. Actually it was Schrodinger's equation and he was writing it on the board and you could hear all the pencils hit the tables and he turned around and he said, listen, if you feel lost, you're getting it. And if you think you got it, you're lost. Yep. Now 
I felt reassured at the time, but then I, I sent a message to uh, Sean Carroll and said, ha ha, look at this funny story. And he was very mad at my professor. He says, that is not good teaching. <laughs> so it's, so I came out of it confused by both sides of the, of the argument. Um, okay. So I think I've got this one backwards too. So I'm thinking if I'm connected, if I'm dialed in through my receiver to the, this greater consciousness, is there anything that in my physical existence and my body or what I perceive to be my body that I can tap into to help make my life better, to help, help make life on earth better, to help my next life better? I mean, is there, is there anything that like if we really kind of dialed into this that we could start to harness um, I don't want to make it sound like a Tony Robbins, you know, seize the power kind of a thing, but is there something there to make that we could tap into that could actually help that maybe most of us are just not, not noticing? I think it's very Do you possible. Think, I mean, what's your opinion? Yeah. I mean, this is getting into the realm of speculation again, but I spent a lot of time thinking about this and looking at it. And yeah, if we, another analogy to think about consciousness to, to answer your question is, is consciousness is sort of like the sun that's always shining and with our brain and our body and our thoughts and our emotions, we end up with clouds that are blocking the rays. And mm -hmm. if, we, if we translate those, the terminology like a ray, ray of consciousness and, and say instead it's sort of like our authentic self, the, the consciousness that is, that is best suited for the individual ego and body. There are, I think if that metaphor holds up in some way, then I think quieting our mind and allowing consciousness to flow through us most purely for whatever it's supposed to do for reasons that we can't understand. I think that might be the highest thing that we can actually do in a body. If what, if this framework is actually yeah. correct, because there's some kind of, there's stuff going on beyond our comprehension. I don't know what, if you call it intelligence or what it is that knows more than the individual does while in a body. So it's kind of this act of, again, humility and surrendering and saying, I don't really know what's going on and I'm not capable of knowing what's going on. So I'm just going to try to shut my mind up and allow the consciousness to flow through me and use, use hints like passion and instinct to guide my behavior. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I like that. So um, just a couple wrap-up questions here. This book, um, what's next for you? you know, after this one, and uh, you wrote it over a couple weekends, did that spark any uh, further projects in your mind that you're looking forward to, to doing, or are you going to be expanding on this for a while? Good question. I mean, I wrote the book, like I said, in 2017, so the, and it was published in 2018. I was working on my podcast series, Where Is My Mind, which is not a traditional podcast. I interviewed 50 people, but the actual eight-episode series is a narrative between mm -hmm. me and my producer, who's a sports producer and he's kind of playing the lay person who's new to this stuff and i'm walking yeah. through a lot of these concepts and we take clips from the from the interviews of all the people that i interviewed so that that eight episode season completed in the fall of 2019 we released the last episode then so that kept me busy for a while and now i don't know yeah. exactly what i'm going to do i mean i mentioned institute of noetic sciences i joined the board there so being mm -hmm. active yep. is, is going to be something i want to focus on. But beyond that, I don't know. I'm always researching and thinking about these things. Um, who knows, maybe another book at some point, but right now, don't know. Okay, fair enough. Um, and just for listeners, I'll put links to both the book and the podcast series. So help people get to that. Um, 
what breakthroughs, you know, do you see coming in the next five to 15 years with consciousness, or do you hope that you'll see coming down the pike with everybody studying different things and the, and the, you know, the Institute and what you guys are looking at, you know, what are you hoping to see in the next five to 15 years when it comes to breakthroughs in consciousness? What I'm starting to see more and more is an acknowledgement from all areas of science that this hard problem of consciousness exists and it's a really big deal and that we're not getting closer with our conventional neuroscience. All we're doing with conventional neuroscience is showing strong correlations between what happens to our brain and the type of conscious experience we have. So let's say you stimulate the, the occipital part of the brain, the part of the brain responsible for vision, then a person might have a corresponding change in vision. And we're, we're seeing a lot of neuroscience like that. And the problem, as Dr. Bernardo Castrop and others say, with, with that line of, of research, and, and to conclude that because there's a strong correlation, it must mean that the brain is producing consciousness, is known as correlation does not imply causation. And as, as Castrop says, yeah. you have a large fire, lots of firefighters show up at the scene. There's a strong correlation between the size of the fire and the number of firefighters, but that doesn't mean the firefighters caused the fire. So right. that, that uh, level of inquiry, I'm starting to see more chatter about that in the mainstream press Good. and mainstream scientists. So that's encouraging to me. And there have been a few books that have come out w which say, wait, we've got a real problem here that we know the brain has some relationship to consciousness, but there's no evidence that the brain actually causes or produces it. Uh, Philip Goff wrote a book that is, touches on this a bit. Annika Harris, Sam Harris's mm -hmm. wife wrote a book. And, and what is emerging from that, from those two thinkers and other people in their sphere is a notion of panpsychism. And panpsychism right. has a number of meanings that I've seen, but the, the one that is, is most typical is this idea that each unit of matter somehow has consciousness embedded in it naturally. And when you put matter together, you end up with more complex consciousness. So basically everything is conscious. All pieces of matter are conscious and consciousness is just somehow a quality of matter. And that's not what I'm arguing. And that's right. not what people like Castro are arguing, but it's, it's acknowledging that we need to look away from this, this materialist view. And just for clarity, the reason that I don't agree with this perspective is that it starts with matter. It says that we have a unit of matter and consciousness comes from it. Whereas what I'm arguing and others are arguing is that nothing is conscious except consciousness itself. A rock isn't conscious. A human being isn't conscious. Rather, we have a stream of consciousness and it manifests somehow in a physical world through physical entities like a human body starts with consciousness rather than matter. But I think still yeah. the, the chatter about panpsychism, the fact that people are even open to writing books about it and, and talking seriously, I see more and more articles. I think that's a positive step. And my guess is that as, as the intellect catches up to what all this means and starts to look at what panpsychism is and where the flaws are, I think it will open up a lot of this other research that, that I cover in my book and that you're covering on your podcast. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And I'm talking to Christoph Koch. He's, he believe he turned into a vegetarian because of his panpsychism. And even he does think there's, you know, some consciousness in a stone. And it kind of reminds me of your analogy of the sun, you know, consciousness shining on us, like, like the sun, it does, you know, shine on the rock also. Mm -hmm. Or shine. So I would it, say shine. It's through. interesting. That anything True. apparently physical, and that's another question thing we could talk about. I don't, I don't even know what matter is. 
because when we look at it in a microscope, it's 99.99999% yeah. empty space. And as you mentioned, uh, uh, the wave particle duality issue is that when we observe something, it, it collapses the wave function into a particle. But until then, the particle exists as a wave of probability. So matter, yeah. we don't even know if it's a particle or a wave and it's mostly empty. So this apparently physical world is, in my opinion, is somehow imbued with this consciousness and consciousness is experiencing itself through everything that is apparently physical. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a, an amazing concept there. And as you talk about it, you can kind of imagine the things are not real until, you know, they pass through, I don't know, pass through or observed by this consciousness. Right. So what else? What else? I mean, we're getting to the end here. Is there anything else you want to get out before, before we wrap up? We've kind of talked to ask you? Yeah, we've kind of talked in general terms about some of these phenomenon. I, it might just be helpful for your listeners for me to mention like the, the, the breadth of the things that I'm interested in terms of these phenomena that I cover in the book and the podcast. And the, the two yeah. general categories are psychic phenomena and survival of bodily death. And those are phenomena which would be considered anomalous or impossible by the materialistic worldview, whereas under this right. alternative perspective where consciousness is fundamental, those phenomena are no longer anomalies. They're no longer paranormal. Rather, they are predicted. So the way that I approach the book and the podcast and the things that I've done is to say, let's look at a bunch of phenomena in these categories. And if any one of them is real, materialism is going to have a really hard time. Aside from all the philosophical issues that Bernardo Castro and other people talk about, let's just look scientifically. Right. These, these anomalies, if any one of them is real, just one, then we can explain it much better by looking at, by saying consciousness is primary. So within those categories, the psychic phenomena category, I have a chapter in my book on each one. So I have a chapter on remote viewing, telepathy, precognition, uh, psychic animals, psychokinesis. And in the survival of bodily death category, there's a chapter on near-death experiences, communications with the deceased, both mediumship and after-death communications, and finally, mm -hmm. children who have memories of a previous life. And my reasoning is, look, there's a lot of evidence in all these areas. In, in any one of those, there's a ton of evidence. And it's coming from places like the U.S. government, where there's, there are declassified documents saying that remote viewing is real. You have papers like one that came out from American Psychologist, the official peer-reviewed journal of the American Psychological Association. And this was by Dr. Etzel Cardenia in 2018, which shows this, the statistical evidence for remote viewing, telepathy, precognition, and psychokinesis, and shows that there is a real statistical effect when you aggregate the data over many decades, and American Psychologist published this article. And then you look at the wow. University of Virginia that has been studying for over 50 years, yeah. over 2,500 cases of children with past life memories and near-death experiences and all this stuff. So my, my point is when you put it all together, and I didn't even mention Princeton's lab run by the former dean of engineering for almost 30 years. I have a hard time as a logical person saying that every single one of these examples is wrong. And given that I right. think at least one, probably more than one is real, then the materialist paradigm, which is also philosophically flawed, is scientifically flawed and a framework that can explain things more easily is one in which consciousness is fundamental. Wow. Yeah. When, when you look at all of those and your ideas, it, it is a pretty good solid explanation. 
I think it's right now, all right. for me, it's, yeah, it's kind of the way I think about it is based on every, all the evidence I've seen, that framework of reality can explain it best. And with the introduction of new data, who knows how it might be tweaked or, or shifted. But I think where we are right now, that framework works best. Yeah, at least, at least study it and, and build on it. Right. Find out what, what comes out of it. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. And I, one more thing. That's fantastic work. I'm glad, I'm glad you, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that, that, that also this framework of reality aligns with personal experiences that people report on psychedelics like DMT in the near-death experience state, mystical traditions throughout the ages, people in meditative states, they all end up entering a state of consciousness that is aligning with this picture that science is pointing to of saying that right. we're in this unitive consciousness. I can't really explain it with words, but we're all connected and the material world is kind of an illusion, but it's kind of not an illusion because we're in it. It's like the same picture that we're seeing over and over again. So when we combine the scientific data with the, with the personal experiences that are reported across cultures in many different eras, I think mm -hmm. that's even more compelling. Yeah, through the doors of perception. Right. Well, excellent, excellent. Any, anything else you want to get out there? No, I think we covered a lot. I've, I, I've exhausted my questions. All okay. right. Well, that, that's what I've got. So I can, uh, I, I'm just really grateful for your time. A lot, really a lot to think about here and shed a lot of information on this. And like I tell a lot of people, whenever I get done with a conversation with somebody with some amazing ideas like this, I always come away maybe a little more confused, but with, you know, armed with a little bit more information on this, this great thing that we know is consciousness. Hmm. Well, I, I feel like that every day because I'm, I'm always studying yeah. and listening to podcasts and reading books. The more I learn, the more I feel like I know nothing, the more I'm aware of my own ignorance. Yeah. And then the more I realize, wait, there's probably a lot of other stuff that I don't know on top of the things that I know I don't know, like the unknown unknowns. Yeah. And it leaves me in this place of surrender and humility of like, I really don't understand what's going on here. I'm here. I have the experience of being conscious. <laughs> I really don't know who I am or what I'm doing here, but <laughs> I'm going to take the data pieces that I've seen and follow passions and intuitions and adhere to a set of values that seem to align with reality and align with feeling. And that's all I can do. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then we can just uh, treat each other well knowing what may be coming. Yes, absolutely. Wonderful. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. This is really a, an insightful conversation and I'm really grateful for you uh, taking the time to do this with me. Well, thank you for having me. That concludes another edition of the consciousness podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the consciousness podcast at our Twitter handle at conchcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.